when you contribute or pay in BC2 or from a super fund, you actually trigger two transactions in one go. With an in-specie contribution, your SMSF receives a contribution, but also gets an asset. And with an in-specie payment, your SMSF pays a benefit, but also disposes of an asset. And this double whammy of two transactions for the price of one, so to speak, makes in-specie contributions and payments more complex than a normal transaction. So let's talk about in-specie contributions and payments in this episode of Text Talks, episode 125. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaus for sponsoring this episode. When you contribute or pay in specie, no cash changes hands. It is just a transfer of ownership, but it will trigger a capital gain on the side of the member when they move the asset into the fund and on the side of the fund when they move the asset out of the fund. But there are CGT discounts and concessions that might apply to these capital gains. An in-specie contribution is a contribution, so the contribution caps and bring-forward rules apply. But it is also an acquisition, and not just any acquisition, but an acquisition from a related party. And as you know, the CIS Act got plenty to say about acquisitions from related parties. The first thing the CIS Act says very clearly in Section 67 is don't do it. Do not acquire an asset from a related party ever. So that would put an end to in-specie contributions full stop. But there are exceptions to this rule. And the three main exceptions are business real property, listed securities and managed funds, and in-house assets below the 5% threshold. If you got one of these, you can make an in-specie contribution as long as you comply with the other superannuation investment rules around an acquisition, like Section 109, asking you to act at arm's length, for example. To make any benefit payment, including an in-specie one, the member must have first met a condition of release, as you know. An in-specie payment can only occur for a lump sum payment, but not for a pension, so the relevant asset would have to leave the super environment. So considering all this, in-specie contributions and payments are complex, and so I asked Gordon McKenzie of UNSW whether he could please tell you more. Here's Gordon. When you look at the in-specie rules, you look at them from two perspectives, and that's in-specie contributing and in-specie benefit payment. And if you have a look at the regulation of in-specie contributions, they're not tax-related. They're CIS rules. They're designed to prevent you manipulating the fund, and the rules are that it's got to go in at market value. There's only a limited class of assets that can be contributed in-specie, Business real property, listed listed securities, and that's designed to prevent you dragging value out of your fund by giving assets which you can't value. The other CIS regulation is that it's got to be a third-party valuation. The trustee of a super fund is prohibited from acquiring assets from a related party 
which is a member or people connected to the member unless they are business real property, which allows small business owners to use their super fund to finance their business assets or their listed securities. And the reason they permit listed securities is because you can find out the value of a listed security simply by looking at your screen. If you've got a Harley-Davidson motorbike, you can't contribute that to your super fund. You can have your super fund acquire it off you, provided it was at arm's length. But they're CIS regulations, they're not tax rules. So they are restrictions on what the trustee can acquire from a member. On the payment side, the tax rules kick in because the tax rules say that a lump sum or instalments, more than one instalment of a lump sum, can be paid by way of assets. Now, that would have to be done at market value, but say, for example, a member of a fund has a particular liking of shares which are held by the trustee, the trustee can actually transfer those shares to the member's name and that will be a lump sum. Pensions, on the other hand, can only be paid in cash. They can't be paid within specie assets. Yeah, and that makes sense. Otherwise, you would be paying one NAP share every week or... Yeah, it kind of probably is for practical reasons. Yeah, we used to make that joke, actually, that if the trustee's got an obligation to pay a pension, then it should fund that obligation with assets that are suitable. This was in the debate about whether super funds could acquire vanity assets. That was when people were getting their fund to buy their Harley-Davidson, which the member of the fund would then drive around the suburbs on a Sunday morning on or they would buy artwork and so on. But there was a debate came out of Jeremy Cooper's review in 2010, so that's nine years ago. He actually said, look, a super fund trustee should be prohibited from buying assets which are collectibles. There's a list of those, boats, motorbikes, artwork. Antiques. Antiques. And in fact, it was the Indigenous art community that pushed back. They said, look, if you stop super funds acquiring our artwork, then we will go out of business. So they kind of found a middle ground and they said, well, the trustee can acquire these kind of assets provided they do five things. And that was they don't store it in the member's premises, that they buy it at market value. And there was the real critical issue of those five was that the trustee had to insure it. So if the asset was not really an asset that was not insurable, then the trustee couldn't acquire it. And it was, in fact, that aspect the obligation on the trustee to, to insure the asset, which in fact just crueled the whole collectible market. People just stopped acquiring them. Some of my... Oh, um, really, did it? Yeah. So before before this rule came in, there were quite a few Aboriginal art yeah. paintings in super funds, and that has stopped now. Yep. And in fact, as I said, they initially were going to ban them completely and say, look, if it's a collectible, you're not allowed to acquire it. But they said, oh, okay, the Indigenous art community pushed back and said we'd be out of work. Oh, okay, well, you can acquire it provided it's not kept on the premises. There were five criteria. The real one that caused the problems for collectibles was the obligation on the trustee to insure it. So either no insurance company would insure it or the cost of insurance was prohibitive. That's had the effect of stopping people investing in collectibles. Some of the people in MS specialisation tried to persuade me that Collectibles include jewellery, that jewellery is a valid asset. Well, yeah, I'm not so sure. The argument was, well, if the fund invests in jewellery, how do you know one of the members of the fund isn't wearing that round her neck on Saturday night? Okay. Well, it's like the Harley-Davidson thing. that You're just using your super fund to acquire. And I said, in the UK, they're called vanity assets. Mm. So that's straight up. Yep. Collectibles don't necessarily come in or go out of the fund as an in-specie contribution or an in-specie benefit. It's just that it used to be, when collectibles were still 
popular in a super fund. They used to very often be contributed in specie or be paid out in specie. Yeah, you're right. The point I was going to make, and again, I come out of the, the other end of the spectrum in terms of superannuation. So I, I set up some of the industry superannuation funds. But superannuation theory is that if the trustee's obligation is to pay a periodic pension, they should fund that obligation with assets that will allow them to pay periodic pensions. And that would not include Picasso's or Harley Davidson's or jewellery. As if you've got an obligation to pay a periodic pension, you should fund that obligation with assets that will match that liability. It's called asset liability management. So we used to joke that what you buy a painting by Brett Whiteley and then when you come to pay a pension, do you tear a strip off and then give that to the member? It was just obvious to experienced superannuation people that the people were just using their fund to buy assets, which they wanted to get tax concessionary. Yes, and the problem is also that collectibles don't usually earn an income stream. So when you buy shares, they earn an income stream that you can then use to finance the um, pension. Exactly. But collectibles don't, so yeah. you run into a cash flow issue. Precisely, and that's Economics 101. It's asset liability management. If you've got a liability, pay a periodic payment, then you should fund that liability with assets that will allow you to do that, and that is not assets which are probably don't have a, a liquid market and certainly don't pay income. Yeah, you're right. And I think that was why Jeremy Cooper and his panel suggested have an outright ban on collectibles. As I've said a couple of times, they didn't go that far because there was pushback. The five criteria, one of which is that you've got to get it insured. If the asset is uninsurable or the cost of insuring it is prohibitive, then people just, you can't buy it. But they left the NSPC payment out for lump sum payments because otherwise it would have been difficult to get the collectibles out. I hadn't thought of that. You're right, yeah. I said um, my thinking with NSPC payments for lump sums, and people have said this to me, that there will be an asset in the fund, usually a particular share or class of shares. Oh, that have an emotional attachment. Exactly, yeah. That's the way they put it, yeah. So the member's got an emotional attachment to it, so they want to take it with them so they get paid out. Mm. Uh, but as you say, if it's paying a pension, it's got to be paid in cash. It can't be paid as... Um, yeah. It makes sense. So, for example, if a lawyer has their office in a super fund and their children take on the law office, then, of course, they want the building to move into another SMSF. Yeah. They don't want to sell it. Yeah, good point. Or, or a farm, a farm that has been in the family for generations. Yeah, they don't want to sell it, they just want to then pay it in an in-specie lump sum out yeah. to the next generation. That's, it's interesting you should say that, because if you wanted to talk about this, wanted to talk about the extra amount of non-concessional assets that people can contribute, the business real property concessions. I think the Board of Taxation is currently reviewing this, and what I'm going to say will not be new to them. But again, when we did this self-money superannuation specialisation, we had in the room a couple of accountants from uh, far northwestern Australia, around Derby or wherever it was. They said they had two elderly people who had a farm worth $10 million and they were able to sell that at zero tax and contribute the full $10 million to their superannuation fund. And I said, how did they do that? Well... Because under Division 152, which is the small business concessions, there are two thresholds, $6 million net value of assets. The other one is a turnover. And they had a very low turnover. I don't know if they were sheep or cattle, but they just, for a couple of years, they stopped selling their, their turnover, just went down. They came within the turnover threshold. So regardless of the value of the asset, 
that was fully exempt. Okay. So that was intriguing. The Board of Taxation is looking at that now. My understanding is that the tax office is aware of that issue and will interrogate those kind of transactions from the people in the ATO I speak with. But I said, how did you get the $10 million into the super fund? Well, I said, oh, they each put in their concessional contribution to the limit. This was before the $25,000 cap. They each then put in their non-concessional using the three-year bring forward, and then they lent the balance to the fund. I see, yes. They lent the balance to the fund, and then also they had special contributions through the small business CGT concessions. Precisely, yeah. So the small business... There's a lifetime limit, but they would have maxed that out. Yeah, you're right. Okay. The thinking behind that is that most small businesses won't have surplus income to put into their super fund, so they kind of get this catch-up at the end when they dispose of their assets. I think it's up to 1.45 million now, and that's per person. So they would have used that, and so... Concessional contributions, non-concessional. Plus bring forward rule. Plus the bring forward, then the small business concessions, and then they lent the balance to the fund. So they eventually they got $10 million to the fund. Now, that was before the ATERA ruling that if you lend to the fund at below market, the fund then generates non-concessional income, which is taxed at the highest marginal tax rate. So they were lending interest-free, but now you lend at market rates and that would be fine. Whatever asset the fund acquired would then be taxable at at uh, 15% or 10% on capital gains. Hmm. But they didn't even have to sell the farm. They could have contributed the farm as an in-species contribution if they had wanted to. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Uh, but then they wouldn't have got the special contributions through the small business CGT concessions. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. That was a question I was asked uh, a couple of weeks ago. Because you have to sell to get the small business CGT concessions. You need to have a capital gain. One of my colleagues actually asked me, they were asked a question by one of their students, precisely that. The student was an accountant. They took over a self-added super fund and the prior advisors had actually contributed the business property under that exemption. And we said, I don't think that's right. I think... To get that extra $1.45 million, it's the proceeds. Now, arguably, the trustee could have acquired, bought the asset, and then, then ah, yes. the proceeds. But yes, of course. And then you have, yes, of course. And the then process. you have a capital gain. Yeah, yeah. And that's just a cash flow management. So that you structure it as a sale and then forgive the, the debt. But they didn't do that. They actually contributed the business real property and said that that's $1.5 million. That's Yeah, and that wouldn't work because you don't have a capital it gain. Is. Exactly. That was our view. The observation is valid when you say that if you're making in-species contributions and indeed if you're making in-species benefit payments, it can be problematic because you've got to get market valuations on them. So it's not as straightforward as you would expect. Yeah, cash is king. Cash is king, yeah. Welcome back. So in-species contributions and payments are doable for some assets, but complex nevertheless. In the next episode, episode 126, we will go through some of your questions and comments you sent in over the past year. I had promised you this ages ago for episode 75, but then just skipped it. So in the next episode, this is what we will do together, finally. Thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <laughs>